the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we'll talk with Melissa Henson. She's the program director for the Parents Television Council. We'll talk about the new Netflix film, Cuties, and why it's so controversial. We'll also hear a classic interview with Ashley Hales. She's the author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Want to begin, however, with uh, what's going on in the Pacific Northwest with wildfires. Here in the state of Oregon, we're being told that over a million acres have burned. Wildfires are up and down the West Coast, and the death toll from dozens of wildfires burning along this coast has grown to at least 35 as gusty winds on Monday threatened to fan flames in parts of the region. Now, the wildfires from California to Washington State have burned nearly 5 million acres, all told, nearly the size of Connecticut and Rhode Island combined. Tens of thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes, and many returning to find only charred rubble. Um, Butte County Sheriff Corey Hanea said on Sunday that two more people had died from wildfires in Northern California, bringing the statewide toll there to at least 24. Seven people remain missing in the area due to the North Complex West Zone fires, according to Hanea. California fires uh, said that uh, as of Monday, the North Complex has scorched more than 261,488 acres and is only 26% contained. Some 3,300 fire personnel are assigned to that blaze. But firefighters are also among those losing their homes. One volunteer firefighter, and yes, there are many of them who are simply volunteers. The firefighter chief, Reed Rankin, has spent 28 years as a volunteer firefighter, but still managed to lose his home in the Berry Creek area due to the blaze. Six of the seven volunteer firefighters in that town also lost their homes. So there's a great deal being lost, not only by those who uh, reside in these areas, but those who are helping to protect their neighbors. Well, Oregon's top fire marshal resigned on the 12th as the wildfires continue to rage across the state. And he was replaced by Chief Deputy Mariana Ruiz Temple. According to the governor's office, Fire Marshal Jim Walker submitted his resignation to the Oregon State Police Superintendent's office. After he was put on administrative leave, the police agency stated no reason was given for his resignation. The new uh, chief is assuming this position as Oregon is in an unprecedented crisis, which demands an urgent response. Oregon State Police Superintendent Travis Hampton said in a statement, this response and the circumstances necessitate a leadership change. I have the absolute confidence in Ruiz Temple to lead over. OSFM operations through this critical time. Well, the new chief will now take over the fire agency as more than a million acres have burned across the state in recent days. At least 10 people have been killed in the fires across the state. Uh, The new chief has led with grace, transparency, and courage, Governor Kate Brown said in a statement. She embodies the experience Oregon needs to face this crisis in this moment. 
Commissioner John Lindsay of Lynn County, an official, said there has been a lack of coordination from the state in responding to the fires. The one consistent denominator missing was uh, the state, according to Oregon Live. Well, the death toll in Oregon continues to climb. We're told now that at least 10 known dead, 50 unaccounted for in the state of Oregon. Governor Brown issued a stark warning this week about casualties from the historic wildfires that have scorched a million acres. State police said she expects dozens of missing persons um, related to the fires, particularly in Jackson, Lane and Marion County. By late Friday, early signs of the disaster's human toll started to come into view. The Marion County Sheriff's Office late Friday reported two additional deaths from the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head fires and 10 people who were accounted for. Agency officials said the victims have not yet been identified. That brings it to seven, the number of confirmed fatalities. That was up just moments ago to 10 uh, in uh, tied to Oregon's wildfires. They include a 13-year-old boy and his grandmother in rural Lyons, two people in the Almeda fire, and a person found Friday in in Vida in a home within the Holiday Farm fire. In Jackson County, 50 people remained unaccounted for in the aftermath of the Almeda and South Uh, Oban chain wildfires burning in southern Oregon. In Lane County, Sheriff Sergeant Kerry Carver said deputies still are compiling a list of people unaccounted for by family and friends in the Holiday Farm fire east of Eugene Springfield. The number on that list changes hourly as cases resolve and the sheriff's office has no official tally. There are plans in place to start safely doing welfare checks, but the fire has to allow us to do that. Well, sheriff's officials in Douglas and Jefferson counties, where large fires also continue to burn, said they have no reports of unaccounted for people. A spokesman for Lincoln County, where the Echo Mountain complex fire had burned 2,400 acres on Friday, could not be reached uh, for comment. Uh, One spokesperson for the Oregon Fire Marshal stressed the number tied to the two Jackson County fires is fluid and subject to change as officials work to track down displaced people. This is a snapshot in time, he says. Uh, They are still working through the list. This is dynamic. This snapshot in time is going to change in the next hours and days as they make phone calls and are in communication with people. Well, heavy smoke hung like a... Uh, sort of an acrid fog over southern Oregon and much of um, the rest of the state as the region continues to confront the wildfires. The uh, Tyler said the Almeda fire, which leveled neighborhoods in Phoenix and Talon, is now 50 percent contained. The south um, open chain fire is burning unchecked near the rural communities of Butte Falls and Shady Cove. Wildfires affecting tens of thousands of Oregonians have burned more than one million acres or nearly twice the yearly average over the last 10 years in just the past week, according to state officials. Meanwhile, a 45-year-old man was arrested on Sunday in Portland after police said he used a Molotov cocktail to start a small brush fire along I-205 freeway. Portland Police Department said in a statement that firefighters were uh, able to quickly extinguish the fire and there were no structural damages. Domingo Lopez was booked into the Multnomah County Detention Center on charges of reckless burning and disorderly conduct in the second degree. Police said they got caught up with Lopez after a witness pointed him out. Police said he confirmed that he lit the fire with the device. The alleged incident occurred while devastating fires up and down the west coast have destroyed neighborhoods, leaving nothing but charred rubble and burned out cars, forcing tens of thousands to flee and cast a shroud of smoke that's given Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, some of the worst air quality in the world. At least 10 people have been killed in the past week through throughout the state. Officials have said more people are missing from other fires and the number of fatalities is likely to rise. Now we're going to talk a bit more in a few moments about uh, arson as a start of the fire. There was some controversy over 
uh, what one sheriff's deputy announced in a video that was posted on Facebook, that there was a link between uh, arson fires and uh, some of the political uh, groups that have been active in the city of Portland. We'll talk more about that. What we know, what they're now telling us is untrue, uh, leaving some questions, but we'll try to bring you up to date with what uh, what is confirmed information. That's later uh, in this uh, this hour. Well, the most common word being used to describe Oregon's ongoing wildfire um, uh, cataclysm is unprecedented. Well, that's certainly the case in modern recorded history. When it comes to the sheer number of conflagrations and mega fires that erupted starting on Labor Day, a powerful windstorm caused fires to race through Oregon's typically more fire-resistant forests on the west side of the Cascades for about 72 hours. Well, when the damage is eventually tallied, the number of structures lost and evacuees will dwarf any previous total in the history of the state by orders of magnitude. The number of acres burned over just a week is likely to surpass annual statewide totals from even the largest fire seasons of the past. And more tragically, the loss of life, as Governor Brown warned Wednesday, may be the largest ever experienced. Well, yet while last week's um, fire was unusual, it was not, in fact, unprecedented. The east wind event that conspired with existing drought conditions to blow up two level fires and other human-caused ignitions last Monday is rare, but hardly unique, academics and fire experts say. The winds were the main culprit in making the the catastrophic infernos as fast-moving as they were. But experts say those east winds are Oregon's version of the dry, downslope Santa Ana winds that's stoke big fires in California. They have long blamed them for some of the largest west side fires in modern Oregon history and say similar wind-driven megafires have shaped the entire ecosystem west of the Cascades over millennia. Well, neither the wind event nor the fires were unpredictable. The windstorms and resulting fire danger were forecast days in advance, but with little appreciable effect. Scientists have long pointed to the inverse relationship between fire frequency and severity of the west side, that is, fewer fires can mean more intense fires, and they warn that fires moving west uh, to the overgrown forests and population centers of the Willamette Valley and southwest Oregon in an age of global warming, as it is being embraced by some, questioned by others. Well, that recognition has spurred little movement beyond the established battle lines that have characterized forestry debate in Oregon for decades. The prospect of widespread forest treatments in the complex ecosystem of the west side, establishing fire breaks and using thinning and prescribed burns to reduce the fuels that choke forest floors is environmentally unthinkable to some and impractical to others. In fact, much of what we're witnessing now can be put down to forest management. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll talk with Melissa Henson. She's the program director for the Parents Television Council. We'll talk about the new Netflix film, Cuties. Inappropriate. We'll talk with her about that in the next hour. We'll also share a classic interview with Ashley Hales, author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. All of that in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, over the weekend, there was a lot of discussion about uh, arson and whether or not it could be linked to or tied to operatives in the city of Portland who've been protesting over the last hundred plus days. There's been a major effort to tamp down what uh, law enforcement and fire officials are calling rumors of arsonists linked to a political unrest. Um, so, And there have been uh, one sheriff, I don't remember now which area he's from, one sheriff who has been suspended for being uh, filmed 
relaying an account, firsthand account of what he saw in terms of an arsonist that he identified as being linked to uh, Antifa. All of that has been discredited by officials. But what I did want to do is take a look at some of what we do know in terms of arson. I'm not suggesting that's the primary cause of the fires we've seen, but it's rather interesting to uh, consider. Four people have been arrested for arson across the West Coast with these fire, uh, wildfires. Two people in Washington State, one in Oregon, one in California, have been arrested on arson charges as firefighters, of course, battle these numerous wildfires across the West Coast. One 41-year-old was uh, accused of starting the Almeda fire. Uh, the Oregon State Fire Marshal's Office reported um, Bekela was arrested on two counts of arson, 15 counts of criminal mischief, 14 counts of reckless endangerment. A witness in Phoenix, Oregon, said they saw a person who was later identified as Bekela, that's with a B, Bekela, um, lighting a fire behind their house in Quail Lane. Residents were forced to flee their homes after seeing him allegedly set the fire. According to the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, in a statement, police arrived to find him standing close, very close to the large fire, threatening several homes. They also found that he was lodged on a, a probation violation detainer for possession of methamphetamine of more than two ounces. Local reports said that the Almeda fire is destroying hundreds of homes, left at least two people dead. Authorities arrested two people in connection to fires in Washington state, identifying one as Jeffrey Allen Accord, who was accused of starting a fire along Highway 167. Officials said that he um, live streamed himself setting the blaze and apparently reported himself to police. Witnesses said that um, Accord allegedly was seen walking on the highway with a lighter and cardboard. Uh, the outlet reported that he is a regular at Black Lives Matters, uh, Matter and anti-police rallies in Seattle. Not necessarily making the connection, but the arrest of someone who has been involved in those events. Jacob Altona, 28, was arrested in connection to arson in Washington State near State Route 512. Um, officials say in California, Anita Esquivels, 37, was arrested for deliberately setting fires in California. Uh, the Monterey um, County District Attorney's Office told Coyne that there is no evidence that uh, she has a connection to Black Lives Matter or far left group Antifa. Officials said uh, that she allegedly set fires on Highway 101 near uh, Barando Road in Salinas. She was taken to Montgomery County Jail on arson charges. The National Interagency Files, uh, Fire Center rather noted that about 97 fires have burned 4.7 million acres across the West Coast. More than 25, or rather 29,000 firefighters and support personnel are assigned to wildfires. Evacuation orders are in place for 40 large fires in California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, um, Idaho, Utah, according to the agency. So these are some of the arrests. And then there was another published report from Taxpayer Association. Police arrested a man for arson over the Sweet Creek fires. 44-year-old man arrested Tuesday on suspicion of arson in a wildfire that burned nearly 400 acres and prompted uh, evacuations west of Eugene. Police in Washington arrested a man who was caught setting a brush fire along SR-167. Uh, police were forced to close the northbound ramp on the highway. Police arrested arson suspect uh, in the Almeda fire I've already mentioned. In Spokane, Washington, there was an arson arrest. Uh, uh, KHQ-TV6 News reported that the police had arrested a woman for multiple arson incidents, according to Spokane Police. Um, on the scene, he, uh, he saw some grass and a pallet on fire outside a commercial business. The same officer spotted another fire a few blocks away. Apparently, this individual responsible. Another arson arrest in California, San Francisco Chronicle reported, 
Ivan uh, Geronimo Gomez of, of Fresno was arrested and booked in Monterey County Jail on the 19th for having uh, engaged in arson. Another suspicious arson fire in Corbett. Uh, Coin TV reported the fireworks were discovered next to a small uh, brush fire in Corbett. Um, on Friday, a man started a small fire in the woods in Dexter, we're being told. That's close to Eugene. man facing accusations. He tried to start a fire in the woods there um, near the Frisbee Golf Course in Dexter. A woman started a fire in Northern California. I mentioned that one already. A man was accused in July of starting six fires in Douglas County. The Mail Tribune reported Portland police arrested a man for six arson attempts, including using Molotov cocktails. He's facing charges after uh, Portland police say he used them to ignite a brush fire along Interstate 205. Um, A man in Portland has been caught trying to set a hotel gas pipe on fire. Andy No first reported to coin um, the rest of the man accused of setting fire to a cloth wrapped around a natural gas pipe. Uh, connected to the Hotel H Hotel in the Pearl, which, of course, is in a wildfire. An Oregon City man was arrested for attempted arson near a building. A police arrested a suspect lighting fireworks at a wood shop in Eugene. Um, and again, we're being told to beware of false arson claims. Police are actively dispelling many dangerous false rumors about political groups, both left and right, intentionally setting fires. Uh, and that uh, before passing anything along, it needs to be verified. What I've given you is a list of actual arrests by law enforcement in Oregon and in Washington. Meanwhile, the U.S. National Hurricane Center in Miami said uh, midday today that hurricane hunters have found that Sally has rapidly strengthened to a hurricane. Sally is located about 135 miles and moving east-southeast of the mouth of the Mississippi River, moving west-northwest at 6 miles per hour with maximum sustained winds of 85 miles per hour. And this, of course, is uh, causing the Gulf Coast once again to brace Mandatory evacuations in Louisiana and Mississippi have already been called. Sally will make landfall tonight into the overnight hours as a hurricane somewhere in southeast Louisiana. A hurricane warning is in effect from Morgan City, Louisiana, to the to the Alabama and Florida borders, uh, as well as Lake uh, Pontchartrain and Lake uh, Maurepas, including the metropolitan New Orleans. Regardless of whether it's a strong tropical storm or a hurricane at landfall, the impact will be the same, with the bigger risk being the water than virtually any other aspect of this um, of this storm. Meanwhile, in other news, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden on Sunday called for gun control less than 24 hours after two Los Angeles County sheriff's deputies were critically wounded in Compton when a gunman opened fire on their vehicle in an apparent ambush. Weapons of war have no place in our communities, the former vice president tweeted. We need a ban to ban assault weapons and high capability um, uh, magazines. Earlier, Biden had called the shooting unconscionable and said the suspect should be brought to justice. He added that anyone who commits an act of violence should be caught and punished. I wonder if he actually applies that to anyone who commits acts of violence. Uh, Biden's comments on the ambush and gun control stand in contrast to President Trump, who called for a fast trial with the possibility of the death penalty for the shooter. Speaking at a roundtable campaign event in Las Vegas, President Trump used uh, Saturday night's ambush to highlight his campaign's law and order while casting Biden as weak on crime. He's not strong for law and order, and everybody knows that. Trump said of Biden during a a Latinos for Trump event, when you see a scene like happened just last night in California with the two police people, a woman, a man, shot at stone-cold short range. 
In other news, uh, city, the city of Linwood has distanced itself from the city manager's social media post about shooting of California, the shooting of the deputies. And Biden says he's in better shape than Trump. Just look at us. You have two geriatrics comparing one another to each other. NAACP activists are targeting the ambush style shooting, claiming a career is a choice, referring to law enforcement. And the um, the two presidential candidates are weighing in with their own views on the subject. We're going to continue to wind our way through some of the top news stories of the last several days, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the 5 o'clock hour, in fact, at 5 o'clock, we'll talk with Melissa Henson, Program Director for the Parents Television Council on the Netflix film, Cuties. Well, a school in New York is under fire after a high school teacher handed out a Black Lives Matter protest image comparing police with slave owners and the Ku Klux Klan. My daughter showed me the paper. I said, what is this? You've got to be kidding me. That's according to a Westlake High School mom. Uh, This cartoon compares the police to the KKK. It's an attack on police. Enough is enough, she said. Well, the first three frames show slave owners and a member of the KKK with their knees on the backs of black men in shackles. The KKK member also has a noose around the black man's neck. The last two panels depict a sheriff and a police officer, each with their knees on the neck of a black man in handcuffs. Well, the parent took her uh, protest to Mount Pleasant School District Superintendent Kurt Coates and Westlake Principal Keith Schenker, whose school is in that district. This cartoon is disturbing. We have to respect the men in blue who respect us. The mom of two, a native of Poland, uh, pointed out, we don't need a teacher brainwashing our kids. I'll teach my kids about what's right and what's wrong. More on that story expected in the days ahead. Where protests are emerging in Lancaster after a fatal shooting of a man armed with a knife. And the NYPD detective has started a Fund the First platform to raise money for military members and first responders. Fund the First. Candace Owens is slamming LeBron James for crying tough life in his million-dollar mansion. The conservative author and activist criticized LeBron James on Sunday over his recent comments on race relations in the United States in a weekend interview on Life, Liberty, and Levin, she noted that the Los Angeles Lakers superstar who has spoken out about his tough life as a black man in America lives in a $1 million mansion in Bel Air. I always say, if you're suffering through racism, please give me some of that. Well, he's got a white gardener, a white chef, all various white people that work for him, white driver, she continues. So if that's racism, LeBron, please, please share some of that with the rest of us. Owens, the author of the recent book, Blackout, How Black America Can Make Its Second Escape from the Democratic Plantation, later described newfound support among high-profile figures, who she said, as of publicly discussing their personal politics for fear of public backlash. These are the same celebrities that are actually posting the black squares in Instagram and saying we must care about black lives. And they're saying they're doing uh, doing it basically under duress because if they don't, they'll lose their entire careers. So being coerced to communicate messages they don't necessarily embrace. In other news, Colin Kaepernick has slammed the NFL over social justice, uh, its campaign, and the Washington football team may be permanent um, as the name, according to the owners. Protesters are blocking buses returning from NBA games, calling on LeBron James for his help. 
Lakers LeBron headed to the conference finals. Basketball is back. And uh, Dominic Thiem has defeated Alexander Zverev in the U.S. Open men's final. Tom Brady's Buccaneers debuted the Spoiled by Saints. Uh, Drew Brees in week one. California City manager is slammed for a post on the ambush involving the uh, two deputies now in critical condition. Peter Navarro abruptly cut from CNN's interview following comments uh, to Jake Tapper. And Iran's considering a plot to assassinate U.S. ambassador to South Africa. Bar Rafiali is sentenced to nine months of community service by the Israeli courts, and Texas B.J. Foster has quit the team in the middle of its blowout win. Well, ByteDance has, choose, has chosen Oracle over Microsoft for TikTok's U.S. operations. And according to a Fox News poll, Biden and Trump have a five-point race in the post-convention uh, era. Coronavirus vaccine could be distributed to Americans before the end of the year, according to Pfizer's CEO. And President Trump says he has signed a new executive order to lower drug prices. United Airlines CEO is warning economic woes will get worse without a vaccine, according to new round of stimulus. Uh, protesters chant, we hope they die, as the ambushed police officers are fighting for their lives in hospital. The NAACP of Springfield, Massachusetts, says there's no such thing as blue lives. The Wall Street Journal writes that Democratic Mayor Eric Garcetti called the chants and protests at the hospital unacceptable and abhorrent, but he and other Democrats need to do more to condemn and ostracize these protesters. Democrats may fear the wrath of Black Lives Matter, but the backlash elsewhere in America will be far greater if pleasure at... um, Cop killing becomes common on the left. A $100,000 reward is offered for information leading to the capture of the shooter. And from another story, the president who was seek, speaking rather at a roundtable campaign event in Las Vegas used Saturday's gruesome shooting to highlight his campaign's law and order message. Cancel Netflix. Well, it's hit number one trending topic on Twitter after Cuties aired, and many did just that, canceled, though the numbers are hard to find. The film that sexualized preteens, these are 11 and 12-year-olds, by the way, shocked viewers. Netflix argued the disgusting movie is justified because they claim they're making the overall point that what they're promoting is bad by promoting it using actual 11 and 12-year-olds. But people remember a few weeks before when Netflix promoted the sexual side of cuties, not the moral condemnation. Netflix uh, quite naturally wants you to see the entire film before you judge. That would certainly um, meet their goal. If everyone did that, they Netflix would boast how popular the movie is. A lot of people canceling. According to Gallup, sports are seeing a massive decline in their image from 45 percent positive to 30 percent in one year. They're now at the bottom of the long list of industries below the movie and legal uh, industry and tied with the federal government. The slide is among Republicans and independents. Democrat viewers uh, haven't changed much, so they didn't uh, even gain from the group they were working to appease. Well, California's governor has signed a bill lowering the penalty for raping a child because California Democrats argued the law wasn't fair to gays. Well, YouTube has taken down a video for contradicting the World Health Organization, the reliable World Health Organization. It was an interview with Scott Atlas, um, uh, 
did the Stanford Hoover's Institute making the uh, making the case. Molly Hemingway points out that big tech is utterly terrifying right now. The World Health Organization is not our master, and they are dangerously wrong with alarming frequency. Even if that were true, free people must be free to counter them. Well, New York tells uh, restaurants that they can now go to 25% capacity, but that's not uh, nearly enough to save many restaurants. And San Francisco is voting on lowering the age to 16 that an individual can vote. The uh, local elections um, taking place. John Thund reminds us that it's San Francisco, but bad ideas um, from there do spread. Well, Joe Biden pushed gun control less than 24 hours after attempting to uh, the attempted assassination rather on deputies and tropical storm Sally is intensifying into a hurricane. Serious threat of storm surge and flooding rain head to the Gulf Coast. Once again, President Trump got a second nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize for his work in the Middle East and in uh, Eastern Europe. Trump signed an executive order to lower drug prices in the fight against big pharma. Betsy DeVos has issued salient final rules protecting religious liberty on college campuses, and a federal prosecutor has resigned from the John Durham probe over the alleged pressure to wrap up ahead of the election, even though the probe should have ended some time ago. The Democrat narrative about buying elections notwithstanding, Michael Bloomberg is going to prop up the Biden campaign with a $100 million gift in Florida. And the U.S. ambassador to China, Terry Branstad, steps down with the rapidly deteriorating relations over the trade war, Hong Kong and the coronavirus. Netflix should face the Department of Justice action over pedophilic cuties, some members of Congress are saying. And the CEO of Netflix was not asked a single question about the uh, film uh, and the controversy during a 10-minute CNN interview. What a missed opportunity. Well, Slate is calling people um, being offended by pedophilia creepy. Not the pedophilia, the pedophile, but the people who are offended by it. They're creepy. A man's been arrested for arson, throwing a Molotov cocktail at a California Republican women's organization building. St. Louis Black Lives Matter protesters from uh, McCloskey confrontation finally cited for trespassing. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer is, continues uh, her streak to, of terrible decisions and orders athletes to wear masks during games. On a related note, Whitmer expressed fear over Trump's Michigan rally, but excused Biden, uh, Biden's event. Portland's mayor has banned police use of tear gas even after 100 days of rioting. And a judge has allowed Los Angeles County to temporarily shut down John MacArthur's Grace Community Church. More than 20 percent of evangelicals wrongly embrace the concept of gender fluidity. And Chick-fil-A is going to be offered a lease in San Antonio, the airport following the Rainbow Mafia moratorium. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, two ambushed uh, police deputies are fighting for their lives. And there is a video. It's a bit blurry and perhaps thankfully so. Because even by today's libertine standards, what it depicts is both depraved and deeply disturbing. A lone man walks up to a passenger side of a parked patrol car at about 7 p.m. on Saturday evening and opens fire at point-blank range, then races away down the street. As the local news reported, a massive search for a gunman is underway as Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputies are fighting for their lives after they were shot in the head in an ambush at the metro station in Compton. 
Well, both deputies sustained multiple gunshot wounds and are in critical condition after having undergone surgery. One deputy was described as a 31-year-old mother of a young boy, while the other was a 24-year-old man. Well, that was a cowardly act, the sheriff Alex um, uh, Villeneuve uh, points out. There's, there's no pretty way to describe the action of the protesters. Uh, uh, as the Wall Street Journal editorial board writes, no one other than the shooter is responsible for the gunman's ambush on Saturday of two Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies as they sat in their patrol car. But the same can't be said for the protesters who blocked the entrance of the hospital where the two are being treated and chanted, we hope they die. The latter is a cultural poison nurtured by the left-wing anti-police movement sweeping the country. Well, black conservative author and commentator Candace Owens was more direct in affixing the blame. She says, why does this happen? Because pea-brained celebrities that are idolized tell young black men that they are literally being hunted. This is the natural result of, a, of such hyperbolic, dishonest rhetoric. The racist, anti-police, Black Lives Matter lie is to blame, end quote. Well, the brazen nature of the crime is reminiscent of uh, one that took place six years ago, as the journal uh, continue. This is the Wall Street Journal. Police haven't identified a suspect, but the randomness of the ambush suggests someone looking for any available police target. We've seen this before when anti-police fever is hot. An assailant shot and killed two officers in their car in New York in 2014 following the death of black suspects being arrested in Ferguson and New York. Well, this is the rotten fruit of the left. It's demonization. Indeed, it's dehumanization of our law enforcement professionals has all but put a bounty on their heads. And when it comes to rule of law, we're a people uh, will reap what we sow. As uh, activists on the left and even mayors push to cut police budgets, there will be fewer police on the beat, and those who are will will reduce what they can do. The people who will suffer most are the very people uh, those on the left claim to care most about. But, of course, the resource to provide that care will simply not be available. Well, in other news entirely, the Department of Homeland Security announced that the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents would begin turning away products sourced uh, from forced labor in Xinjiang, the region of China, where more than a million Muslims, mostly the Uyghur minority, have been imprisoned in concentration camps. The ban's going to include cotton, hair products, computer components, and some textiles. Uh, Department of Homeland Security officials said the ban was part of the Trump administration's effort to crack down on the Chinese Communist Party's atrocities in that region, including holding Uyghur people in what they have labeled concentration camps. Um, Officials added that uh, they had narrowed the ban to include only a few specific products for the order to be legally unassailable, but that more prohibitions are to come. So the United States responding specifically to those concentration camps where millions of Uyghurs are currently being held. At a White House ceremony last week, Kosovar Prime Minister Abdullah Hadi and Serbian President Aleksandr Vucic signed agreements aimed at normalizing economic relations between their two neighboring Balkan nations. Well, after years of sharp disagreements and failed negotiations, the agreement on September the 4th, achieved under the auspices of the United States, aimed to enable a more free and efficient flow of people and goods across the borders between Serbia and Kosovo and promise a more forward-looking and constructive relationship between the two nations in the future. The Trump administration's special envoy for Serbia and Kosovo, 
underscored the importance of the accord, saying ever since 2017, the U.S. position on the Serbia-Kosovo conflict has been that steps toward economic normalization will dilute the power and importance of the dispute's hot-button political matters. Friday's agreement reflects President Donald Trump's long-held vision of Kosovo and Serbia to focus on economic development, job creation, and industrial development as prerequisites prerequisites rather to the permanent resolution of political disputes his belief from the start has been that trust is built first in the process of creating opportunities and futures for young people rather than in the settlement of scores symbolism or the writing of historical wrongs well grinnell also made it clear the u.s will spend the next year implementing those new agreements and the people and the governments of kosovo and serbia have the full trust of the united states government to carry them forward kosovo is a small country in the western balkans with a history rooted in complex relations between its ethnic and religious groups following the wars in the 90s kosovo was um, placed under u.n administration in june of 1999 In February of 2008, Kosovo declared its independence from Serbia and has been recognized by 114 countries, including the United States and all of Kosovo's neighbors in the Balkans, except Serbia as an independent sovereign nation. Currently, the U.S. maintains about 660 troops in Kosovo as the largest contingent in NATO's Kosovo force, a peacekeeping force the alliance maintains in that region. From Washington's foreign policy perspective, creating and preserving a more secure and prosperous Balkans is clearly in Americans' interest. Well, even so, Washington can't provide Kosovo and Serbia, Serbia rather, moderately free economies, according to an annual index of economic freedom with a lasting political will that will uh, be needed to transform their economies according to free market principles. Now, both countries need significant additional reforms uh, to economic policies, still too reminiscent of their socialist past. The U.S. can help by engaging at the technical and practical level in ways that enable both countries to advance their economic modernization and attract greater private sector investment. Again, the headline, however, a hopeful new chapter dawns for Kosovo and Serbia. Well, the war on history is about overturning America's constitutional system. Mary Graybar, who has been a guest on this program, she's a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute and the author of the book, I highly recommend debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Zinn was a radical historian whose book, A People's History of the United States, has been widely influential since its first publication back in 1980. It's a radical uh, revisionist uh, view of history uh, that led to uh, the 2020 unrest. Um, Graybar spoke uh, recently at the Heritage Foundation event in late August on the perils of revisionist history as part of an ongoing series of presentations called The Power of Trial and Triumph. Well, the events hosted uh, host rather were Angela Sale, who's the vice president of Heritage uh, Fulner Institute, and Alan uh, Guzzler, who's a, a visiting fellow at Heritage. Graybar uh, laid out how Zinn portrayed himself as a truth teller who was debunking myths created about American history using newly uncovered sources. And we're just about out of time in this segment to continue, but I did have the opportunity to interview. Um, Mary Graybar. I'm hoping we are able to uh, rebroadcast that conversation, but I'll talk more about that uh, hopefully in tomorrow's program because it's significant in understanding the roots of much of what we've been seeing uh, in our culture uh, most recently in protests all across the country that have uh, essentially become unhinged from the Black Lives Matter movements, the the just general idea of addressing the events that took place 
um, uh, most recently in May, as well as um, some of the protest movements that have linked to it that have little or nothing to do with uh, George Floyd and events that followed. So hopefully we'll get a chance to get into that at some future point. But the book I recommend uh, is simply titled Debunking Howard Zen, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. We've got news and traffic coming up here in just a few moments, but in the second hour, you should know that Melissa Hinson will be my guest. She's the program director for the Parents Television Council. We'll talk about the Netflix uh, film made in France titled Cuties. And we'll also share a classic interview with uh, Ashley Hales, author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. We'll also bring you up to date on what's happening with Grace Church in California with Pastor MacArthur and Charles Stanley has decided he's going to step down after pastoring for 50 years. Stanley's 88. We'll bring you up to date on what's happening there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, some of you are aware of a film that's recently been released by Netflix. It's called Cuties. Huh. Well, after reviewing the film, the Parents Television Council stands by its earlier criticism that this TV MA rated film sexualizes children. After an outcry about the film's marketing material that used a highly sexualized image of prepubescent girls about 11 years old in suggestive dance poses, Netflix apologized and replaced the art with one that was more innocent. Of course, that didn't change the content of the film itself. We're here to talk about this controversy that has generated a number of um, complaints, protests, and a um, petition is Melissa Henson. She's the program director for the Parents Television Council on this Netflix uh, movie, Cuties. Melissa, thanks for joining us once again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Well, I think many of our listeners have heard the name of the film, but may not be familiar with its content, some of which we couldn't describe in graphic detail because it would not uh, stand uh, muster on radio. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what this film is supposed to be about, um, but fails. uh, I think it really falls short because it does the very thing it purports to oppose. Right. And and that's that's the crux of the problem right there. So. What we have, the premise is um, 11-year-old Amy has moved to France. She's the daughter of uh, Senegalese immigrants. They're observant Muslim family. Um, and she sees uh, girls her age um, behaving in a very sort of sexualized manner, um, the result of the, the, the popular media, popular culture that surrounds them. Um, she's drawn to this group of girls. She tries to fi- find a way to fit in. She tries to emulate them. But she goes even farther than these girls who grew up in this uh, sexualized Western culture. She's eagerly seeking out, um, you know, music videos, for example, that show fairly explicit dance moves. Um, and, and she's identifying with and, and, and incorporating into her, her own life, her own personality, her own being, um, a very adult sexuality that she's uh, picking up from the media that she's consuming. So the movie was supposed to be a critique of sexualization of children and the impact that it has on children. Um, and the first half of that movie, I think, could have done it pretty effectively without getting too explicit and without um, exploiting the children. 
but then in the second half of the movie, it gets very dark very quickly. And um, these 11-year-old, 12-year-old actresses that actually starred in the movie were being asked to do things that no child should be asked to do, certainly not for the sake of entertainment. Um, and um, I think they could have made the point very effectively without going mm-hmm. to the extreme that they did and without actually contributing to the problem that they're claiming this movie is intended to condemn. One of the critics I uh, read made the point that if this had been a movie movie that involved animal cruelty and there was just a a disclaimer, no animals were harmed in the uh, production of this film, um, it wouldn't have been acceptable. In this case, you can't say no children were harmed in the production of this film. It's not just the graphic sexual dances that the girls are engaged in, but the vulgar language, um, the use of foul and vulgar language. Um, some of yeah. the activities that they are engaged in, I, it's just shocking to me. And these are not yeah. adults playing 11 and 12 year old girls. These are 11 and 12 year old girls who are asked right. uh, to do all kinds of things that under any other circumstance, including this one, quite frankly, would be considered absolutely inappropriate. Right. Yeah. Um, Babylon B has been really on fire on this on this issue. And they had a headline, new Netflix movie actually murders puppies to teach that murdering puppies is bad. <laughs> I mean, that, that makes the point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, you have to laugh at it, right? I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd. And yet this is this is the defense that Netflix is putting forward. Oh, it's actually a critique of sexualized culture. Well, no, it's not. It is sexualized culture. Um, masquerading as some sort of pro-public or, uh, you know, pro-social message, but it's not that at all. And we also have to look at this in the context of what else Netflix has done to sexualize children. You know, Netflix, all of a sudden, we're supposed to believe they care about this issue when they have a track record of sexualizing kids inappropriate with their content. They have the Argentinian film Desire, which shows a nine-year-old girl self-stimulating. They've got... um, uh, I think it's called babies about 16 year old prostitutes. They've got big mouth an animated series about pubescent kids that sexualizes them in really gross and disturbing ways. They've got sex education, which is all about high schoolers and um, features nudity, the likes of which you would only ever see on HBO or Cinemax. I mean, this is their hands are not clean when it comes to sexualizing kids and, and for them to claim that this is really a pro pro, um, Uh, pro-social message, uh, that's really kind of um, uh, a stretch. One of the things that um, you point out in your article on this from the Parents Television Council is that in addition to um, using actual uh, pubescent girls for the film, it's also desensitizing millions of viewers at home by asking them to be entertained by what they're seeing involving these young kids as well. Moving us closer to a culture in which the sexualization of children um, is is accepted. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the most concerning part. You know, when this, this um, movie poster was originally made public, there was a huge backlash and Netflix apologized and they changed the movie poster and they said, well, we, you know, we, we, we misrepresented what this movie was really about. It's just a fun coming of age movie. And that attempt to spin what this movie is about, I think is ultimately even more dangerous and even more damaging um, you know, a mother looking at the original poster could look at that and say, I do not want my child to see this. I don't want my child to dress like this. I don't want my child to act like this. I'm not going to let my child watch. 
they changed it to this poster where these girls are, you know, they're carrying shopping bags and it just looks like they're having fun and they changed the description of the movie. So it just seems like a cute, innocent coming of age film, which it is not at all. Mm-hmm. By doing that, I think they've increased the likelihood that this is something that kids might be interested in because they see kids their own age who look like them, who dress like them. Um, and and it, it now looks like it's appropriate for young viewers, which it absolutely is not. Yeah, yeah. Um, this film was produced in France, and for centuries, the French legal system didn't classify sexual activity with children to be a criminal offense. And apparently, in some instances, it still doesn't. I could cite some examples, but we don't um, have time. So this was made in the context of sex with children isn't necessarily a, uh, a an illegal uh, act, uh, sort of exporting the idea, uh, which we seem to be approaching in this country here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's that's troubling for them to be exporting that kind of an attitude about um, sexual abuse of minors It's very, very troubling. And I think we need to we need to make sure that Netflix gets the message loud and clear. This is not acceptable and will not be tolerated. My understanding is there has been a petition opposing this um, this movie and asking people to end their subscription. It's gained some six hundred thousand signatories. Um, your thoughts on how effective that will ultimately be in addressing this move towards sexualizing children, which Netflix didn't begin with this film, but continues with it. Yeah. Um, so what we've seen in the past, and this is, as I mentioned, this is, this is not a unique thing for Netflix. This is part of a larger pattern of behavior. Um, and whenever Netflix has been called to account, for inappropriate messages, especially inappropriate messages targeted kids. Um, you know, you look at their history, for example, with 13 Reasons Why, which has been linked by CDC studies with a spike, uh, um, spike in youth suicide and attempted suicide. Um, they, they, they staunchly and steadfastly stand by their content. They refuse to admit that they've done anything wrong. And unfortunately, with Netflix, there is no lever with the FCC to pull because they are outside of the purview of the Federal Communications Commission. There is no lever with advertisers that you can pull because they they don't have advertiser support. So really, there's very few pressure points um, to make Netflix vulnerable. One is losing subscribers. And according to one report I saw this morning, they've lost, their stock has fallen over $17 per share. That means that something like $8 billion worth of trade revenue has been lost in one week because of this movie and people dropping their Netflix subscriptions. Um, I hope that, I hope that gets to them. I hope that makes a difference. Um, but beyond that, um, we are encouraged to see folks on Capitol Hill calling for congressional hearings, calling for mm-hmm. DOJ investigations into Netflix. We're very encouraged and we support that and, and applaud those efforts. Um, but it's going to take something monumental to get Netflix to change this pattern of behavior. Um, they have a lot of very powerful and influential people associated with Netflix, doing projects with Netflix. And those people need to be standing up and saying, Netflix, you need to cut it out. You need to stop this. Um, And I hope that they will use their voices to make that kind of an impact. Well, I hope so, too. Melissa Henson, I thank you so much for your time here on the program today. But more importantly, I appreciate your role as the director of Parents Television Council and the work that you all do to bring this kind of uh, programming to our attention so that we can, first of all, be aware and protect our own family and the innocence of young children, um, but also to stand up to those who are profiting by the sexualization of children and robbing them of their innocence. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Melissa Henson is the program director for the Parents Television Council. You should go to their website for all kinds of really timely, good information about what the entertainment uh, media is bringing to our households. And in some cases, as is the case with Netflix, we're actually paying for You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Ashley Hales. She's the author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, more than half of Americans live in the suburbs. My next guest, Ashley Hales, she writes that of many Christians, however, the suburbs are ignored, denigrated, and demeaned or seemed as a cop-out from a faithful Christian life. In everything from books to Hollywood jokes, the suburbs aren't supposed to be good for our souls. What does it look like to live a full Christian life in the suburbs? Suburbs reflect our good, God-given desire for a place to call home. And suburbs also reflect our own brokenness. Well, this book is an invitation to look deeply into the soul as a suburbanite, (laughs) suburbanite, I know I can say the word, and discover what it means to live holy there. Well, I'm talking about the book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Ashley Hales is a writer, speaker, pastor's wife, and mother of four. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, and her writing has been featured in books and uh, and culture, the Inglewood Review of Books, the Gospel Coalition, and Christianity Today. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Now, for those of us who live in the city, we might need some uh, something of a primer on on the difference between living in cities or in rural areas and the suburbs that makes this the subject of of your book, which I think has something to say to all of us. But I want to at least begin there. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that, you know you see the word suburbs, and if you don't actually live in the suburbs, you can feel like, oh, this book isn't for mm-hmm. me. Um, but I think the really what I do try to talk about in the book is kind of a, a suburbs of the soul and the ways that our places and our geography fashions our values and our affections and our desires. And so even if we do end up living, you know, downtown in a city, things like busyness and, you know, this focus on the individual, um, the focus on safety can really affect us wherever we live. So I would encourage, yes, city dwellers, pick up the book. You will find a lot to relate to. You write that the suburbs are full of younger brothers trying to clean up their act to be accepted, to work harder, be responsible, tone down impulse and pleasure to fit into a buttoned up world. But the suburbs are also full of elder brothers turning their nose up at the lavishness of grace because we've worked hard for what we've earned. Uh, You make a reference to the um, uh, the prodigal son and his brother and mm-hmm. their their perspective on life help us to understand what they can teach us about how place influences um, our worldview and how we live out our Christian life. Mm, yeah, you know it, the parable of the prodigal sons is one that I have come back to quite a lot, and it really anchors the book um, because what it looks like is I wanted to know, you know, if God is good, if He's like that father in the parable, how does He relate to His children? And I think we can see ourselves either as kind of that younger brother who goes off and says, I don't want anything to do with the father. I don't want, I will make it on my own. Um, and then we see it also in, in the son who stays and he tries to pull himself up by his bootstraps and do the best he can. And yet, even then he's not actually loving the father, right? He just wants all of the inheritance. And so we see in that parable, both of these brothers who are lost 
um, and that the Father, our Father in heaven, comes and he grows to meet both of them, whether we're lost in, you know, repudiating the goodness of the Father and saying, I'm going to go make it on my own, or if we're lost in following all the rules. And so I see a lot of people here in the suburbs who tend to be rule followers. You know, they've lived a good life. They have a successful job and career. Um, But I think we don't realize when everything looks good on the outside sometimes the ways that our own souls are kind of withering inside. And I think uh, the book and, of course, the gospel of Jesus has, has a better message for us, that our places form who we are, they form our desires, and yet we can still live full Christian gospel-oriented lives wherever God has put us. But you seem to be suggesting, and I think you make the point in the book, that we need to be intentional about it, because if if Correct, we're not, yeah. we can find ourselves sort of in the lap, uh, lap of luxury, luxuriating in the comfort without looking outward and seeing what God has called us to beyond our own comfort and what's familiar. Exactly. And I think, unfortunately, um, for those of us that for those of us in the suburbs who have a relative amount of affluence or privilege, um, we can get really comfortable in that. And the, the gospel call, right, is to always go out and to find the weary and the brokenhearted and the people on the margins. Um, and sometimes that looks like someone just right across from your white picket fence. Um, some, it's not always, you know, going out to do something to help someone down the road. Um, but I think I'm just encouraging folks to say, hey, there are broken people all around you, and there's people who need the gospel of Jesus all around you. And just to reckon with what does it look like to both love our suburbs and to repent of the ways in which our places have misshaped our desires. Mm-hmm. You write again from Finding Holy in the Suburbs, um, our, place, uh, our places are good gifts. Home is how we begin to know who we are. Yet when we use the gifts of our place, when we use the suburbs as ultimate things, like Pastor Tim mm-hmm. Keller is fond of saying, we worship them. This book is a gentle call to all of us in the suburbs to come home, to find belonging, not in what we buy or how uh, we constantly center ourselves, but in loving God and our neighbor. And that mm-hmm. is a challenge to every believer, but perhaps there is a unique feature to um, that challenge when living in the suburbs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think those of us in the suburbs, sometimes it takes a longer time for us to get to the end of our rope, you know, than the, the story of the prodigal son who, you know, when his money ran out and everything turned horrible, he knew his need. Um, and so the challenge is for those of us who don't know our need quite as desperately to begin to kind of press into those hungers um, and to get a community of people around you who want to press into those hungers and continue to look outward. Now, how has your perspective, uh, your perception of life in the suburbs changed over time? You know, I grew up in the suburbs, um, and then my husband and I, we've kind of moved around to kind of mid-sized cities. We lived overseas in Scotland for graduate work. Um, And so there was this sense, I think, growing up that it was safe, it was great, it was wonderful. Um, And then I think as I got older, it became like, you know, you don't ever move home the suburbs are boring, you know, just very like Hollywood trope. (laughs) But I think, you know, as we have experienced this call to move back to the suburbs to realize, I think I can tend to think of it as, you know, where culture goes to die. But um, I have found beautifully broken and cultured and lovely people here in the suburbs, Um, people who need Jesus, people who spur me on, people who are doing great cultural work. Um, So, I think I have, whenever I actually look at my place and I walk and I meet people, 
um, and I reach out to people, I'm always surprised at the goodness that God brings into my life. So I think just to encourage all of us, I think it's really easy, right, to think, to paint with broad brushstrokes until we actually get to the particularities of our particular neighborhoods and places and spheres of influence that God has put us in. Mm. Now, why did you choose to write a book about living in the suburbs? And was there some mitigating circumstance or event that said, I need to share this perspective with others? Yeah, well, we had just moved from Salt Lake City uh, to plant a church back a few miles from the hospital my husband was born in. Um, And I realized from all of these moves that that had kind of been the narrative that I had used to tell my story about who I was and how God was working and growing me. Um, And then I realized as I moved home, I kind of had this roadblock of what does it look like to move home as a grown adult? And what does it look like to be in this land of plenty when there's so many people I know who are, you know, living overseas as missionaries or doing quote unquote big things for God. And is this an okay calling to be here um, to be relatively comfortable? Um, How will, how will people, you know, react to us? Um, Can you live on mission here in the suburbs? And so it really was precipitated by my own desire to both reach out to people um, as a church planter and his wife, um, but also just because I was, I realized I had used my own place and my own moves away from home as markers of I've made it and I've arrived. And so it was a big reckoning with, you know, I can have a very small, ordinary life and that is beautiful and God honoring too. Um, You say that you've connected your sense of mission and calling often more to where we live than how Mm -hmm. we live uh, where mm-hmm. we do. And that's such an important thing because we all live mm-hmm. in such different places. Um, that may not be the right question. It's wh- you know how we live. Mm, yeah, I think that's really important to remember, because even if, you know, you're living in some worldwide city and doing all of these great, huge things, or if you're working in the slums of India or in, you know, a inner city in Los Angeles, like we still have neighbors, we still have family members, we still have jobs and paying the bills. And so how we do even those small things is pretty universal. Now, the um, the title of your book is Finding Holy in the Suburbs. What does um, what does your book teach us about place that can help us to find holy when we live in the suburbs or for that matter, wherever we live? Mm, yeah, you know, I think um, I think most of us don't look at the category of place as something that affects us particularly or mm-hmm. something that should shapes us. We, you know, we, we look to our jobs, we look to our families, we look to, um, you know, our, our doctrine or, you know, our church attendance, we look to all these other outward markers of identity. And so my hope in finding holy in the suburbs is to say place needs to be an important category that we also consider in how it shapes us and forms us. And it's not neutral. Um, And so as we look at how do I live a God honoring life, how do I spread the gospel right where I am? Um, we need to reckon with what are what are the cultural values of my place? And then how do I both affirm the things that are good there as well as call parts of that culture towards repentance so that we can all live in light of God's sense of he call, he's calling us as sons and daughters of God. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. And I think most of us in America live in the land of too much, uh, perhaps some places more so than others. We're going to continue our conversation with Ashley Hales in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're continuing our conversation this afternoon with Ashley Hales. Ashley is a writer, speaker, pastor's wife, and mother of four. She holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. And after uh, years away, she's back in the Southern Californian suburbs, helping her husband plant a church. Resurrection, Orange County. She writes in uh, her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much, that our souls suffer in the suburbs when we have the financial means to always fill our needs, where we sleep on feather beds and eat rich foods. If famines and failure do not lead us to see our bloated but starved souls, then as people on the way, we must practice the discipline of being curious about our small hunger pains. This hurts. It brings us to our knees when we realize our hungers have been numbed. You write a lot about um, hunger and thirsting for the right things. Uh, Talk a little bit about um, individualism, consumerism, safety that doesn't just plague suburban living, but living all across the fruited plain. Mm, Yeah. You know, I think the idea of hunger, right, is that it's a guest. St. Augustine idea that our hearts are restless until they rest in God and that God's created with hunger. He's, he's created us with desires that can only ultimately be fulfilled by him. And yet we tend to look at these kind of suburban idols, the idols of our place uh, to fill those hungers. So like you mentioned, some of them are consumerism. We, we go from purchase to purchase and, I'm hitting close to home, I'm sure, as we're all finishing up <laughs> yeah. our Christmas shopping. But um, I, I know it myself, too, right, that we think once we buy something that um, we'll, we'll be satisfied. Or, you know, like the I buy the water bottle and suddenly I'm going to become healthy. And so we, we pin our hopes about our identity onto a product um, or individualism where everything revolves around us or our nuclear family. And we are less concerned with the good of the community, whether that's our neighborhood or our church um, or, you know, wider communities around us in the cities that we orbit uh, that we're only kind of concerned about ourselves or things like business. Sometimes we're just distracted. We're distracted by our phones. We're distracted with, you know, kids' schedules and lives, um, and we stay busy almost to say that we have value in a post-industrialist society. You know, we keep working or we keep moving. Um, and safety, too, is also, is particular in, to the suburbs in that, you know, the suburbs, at least post-war American suburbs, are created kind of as a way to keep everybody safe, to move away from the quote-unquote perils of the city. Um and so you see in suburbs, particularly this idea of I have to keep me and my own safe. Um, and so I have to withdraw from people, from hurt, um, for the chance that someone else's story might impinge upon my own. Um, but the gospel call breaks down all of those barriers and says we repent. We live out of who Jesus says we are as his beloved children. Um, and then we move forward in rhythms of hospitality and vulnerability and things that help to create communities um, so that grace and healing can come. Well, let's talk about how um, those of us who live in the suburbs, and I live in the city, but I relate so much to what you have written. (laughs) um, How do we begin to find holy in the place where we live that, as you've just described, so often defines what our priorities and values are, even unconsciously? Right. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the book is too, is just trying to say, like, hey, let's talk about this because a lot of it is just kind of our autopilot mm-hmm. of our place. Um, but I think, you, you know, some really small steps. I talk a lot about in the book about starting small and staying put. So 
choosing to not, you know, move to the bigger house or upgrade the car or move neighborhoods because that's what everyone else is doing and to stay put and to start in really small things. So a lot of that for me has looked like walking. So I think when we walk, we actually see the people around us. We can take regular walks in our neighborhood um, because I think I will tend to view my neighborhood in this abstract, generic sort of sense. But if I'm walking, I actually see people. And then as I see people, I'm able to engage in just friendly conversation that can eventually lead on to relationship, that can lead on to kind of intimacy and, a, you know, a conversation about Jesus along the road once you have developed a relationship. So I think walking is really a very small way that you can just put that on your calendar um, to get to know your place. And then secondly is eating. And I think we've really lost the art of hospitality. Mm. And there's something really beautiful about being welcomed into someone's space. And I encourage people, it can be really easy. You can grab a Costco lasagna. You can, you know, do something outside with a neighborhood block party to kind of take the edge off. There's so many things you can do just to simply create community because community always is created around food. So, um, invite people in, maybe give yourself a challenge with a group, say, hey, let's try to do this once a month and see where we are. And um, you can all kind of have your own little hospitality challenge. And then lastly, um, I would say to both give and to serve. We always give our money, our resources, and our time uh, to the things we love, whether that's you know, our kids' soccer team or our local church. Um, we always find money in the budget for the things that we love. And I'm convinced more and more that um, we need to be rooted in our local churches and that are trying to meet the local needs of the people around us. Um, and that means, too, that we don't go to the hipper, cooler church down the street just because, you know, they have lattes or something. But try to invest in your actual community um, because those people are concerned about your actual community. So mm. And treat the church, too, as not simply another consumer choice, right? Like they have the best worship or whatever it is, but um, that this is the family of God that you get to belong to and suffer with and get angry with and work things out because God's grace is bigger. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things you also recommend is reading the book with others and discussing how it impacts uh, the community. It's wonderful to read it on your own, but I think getting together with others in your community who mm-hmm. are like-minded, who really want to find holy in the suburbs, mm-hmm. uh, how you as a community can can broaden your, your impact uh, by following some of the things you've just described. Yeah, it definitely makes a great like small group study for churches mm-hmm. and neighborhoods and friends and to have other people who are rooting for you, who can be there when you make mistakes and cheer you on when you're nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because what you've described for some of us is just terrifying. The thought right. of trying to organize something in our neighborhood, but love yeah. trumps terror. And if we mm. if we can muster up enough love and have God's perspective on the people that he's yeah. placed in our neighborhoods, then maybe we can step out beyond our own capacity. And in the in the process, come to appreciate God's enabling us to, to mm-hmm. do more than we are able on our own. Yes, yes, that's great. Well, I really appreciate the book and the challenge to those who live in the suburbs and those of us who may not live there precisely but have the the same mentality. Finding holy in the suburbs, living faithfully in the land of too much. Ashley Hales, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, you are welcome. It's really been a appreciate pleasure. It. The book, by the way, is uh, published by InterVarsity Press, is available in bookstores, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church defied a court order this weekend that directed them to refrain from holding indoor services with COVID-19. The pastor argued that following the county's strident uh, guidelines would completely shut the church down. Well, on Sunday, Grace Community held a packed morning service just days after a Los Angeles County Superior Court judge granted the county's request for an injunction prohibiting the, the uh, Sun Valley-based church from holding indoor services in violation of county health orders. Well, Pastor uh, MacArthur began the service by outlining why Grace Church does not just uh, comply with the orders that have been laid out by the um, by. Uh, for churches, rather. I thought it might be helpful to give you the list of things that are required of us as a church so that you understand how utterly impossible that would be. He then read a long list of the county's requirements, including no singing, no hugging, temperature checks, no communion, using the bathroom exclusively during the service, shortening sermons and maintaining six foot, uh, six feet of social distancing at all times, everywhere, among others. Well, the pastor said following all the rules would completely shut the church down. Obviously, he went on to say this is not constitutional, but more importantly, it goes against the will of the Lord for the church who calls us together. He said, look at the person next to you and say, I don't know who you are, but I'm so glad I'm sitting next to you. Well, the pastor went on to question whether or not the United States is truly one nation under God, saying nations are obligated to worship the true God. He stressed that, um, did you hear what I just said? They're obligated to worship the true God, and there are dire circumstances that will come upon them if they fail to do that. That is not an option. That is a divine command. He went on to say it's unavoidable because God is immutable. He doesn't change, he said. When the government thinks its only responsibility is for physical, material, social, temporal needs and ignores the spiritual reality of the true God and people's spiritual needs, when a nation becomes indifferent to the true God and his word and his law, it makes a grave mistake, which, if not reversed, will lead the nation to its own destruction. The notion of a secular state is a lie, he declared. Government is ordained by God. Again, quoting Pastor MacArthur. Well, county officials had repeatedly tried to get the court order to shutter the church, which has been holding in-person worship services since last month in violation of orders from Governor Gavin Newsom. Well, on Thursday, Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Mitchell Beckel, Beckloff, he ruled that the church must not conduct any indoor worship services. As for outdoor worship services, the county allows them as long as attendees fully comply with the county mandates relating to physical distancing and face coverings, according to uh, Thomas More Society, the law firm representing the church. In an 18-page ruling, the judge wrote that the uh, counties demonstrated a likelihood of success on the merits of its claims and found that the balance of harms tips in its favor. Well, the potential consequence of community spread of COVID-19 and um, uh, co-contaminant risk of death to members of the community associated and unassociated with the church outweighs the harm that flows from the restriction on out or, or rather indoor worship caused by the county health order, the judge wrote. Previously, officials had sent a cease and desist letter to the church and threatened MacArthur with fines and even possible arrest if the church doesn't comply with the state orders. In August, Los Angeles County terminated a lease agreement for a parking lot the church has used for over 40 years. And last week, the county fined Grace Community Church $1,000 for violating the COVID-19 sign ordinance due to the placement of the sign. Well, following that ruling on Thursday, Thomas More Society Special Counsel said attorneys will continue to fight for Pastor MacArthur and Grace Community Church constitutionally protected right 
to hold church. And while the judge did go out of his way to repeatedly state that he is not ruling on the merits, only a ruling at this very preliminary stage, Pastor MacArthur is still harmed because he has every right to hold church. This is one response to COVID-19. We're seeing this in not only Grace Church, but a number of churches across California and some of the churches here as well, choosing not to comply with those orders. Well, in a video announcement following the online service at First Baptist Church in Atlanta on Sunday, longtime Pastor Charles Stanley announced his transition to Pastor Emeritus. Well, Stanley, who came to First Baptist as an associate pastor back in 1969 before being named pastor two years later, informed the church's board earlier this month of the decision, I'm so grateful God saw fit to allow me to serve as your pastor for more than 50 years. As much as I love being your pastor, I know in my heart this season has come to an end. Pastor Stanley, he explained he isn't retiring, but will focus his energies on In Touch Ministries, which he founded in 1977. As you know, he said, I don't believe in retirement. I'll continue to preach the gospel as long as God allows. My goal remains the same, to get the truth of the gospel to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God. When Charles Stanley's uh, marriage ended, um, prayer was his lifeline, even after 40 years of ministry, The uh, luminary still starts and ends every day on his needs. Anthony George uh, will transition from his position of associate pastor, which he accepted in 2012, to senior pastor. In 2017, the church announced a succession plan for Stanley, George, and the First Baptist pastorate. He followed Stanley's um, comments in the video with some of his own, saying, Thank you for being strong and of good courage through every battle that you've had to fight, through every trial you've had to overcome. He went on to say that you have stood tall and confident through all these years, while at the same time remaining dependent and prayerful before an almighty God. Because you were a yielded vessel, the gospel of Jesus Christ through you has blanketed this globe. Truly, God has been with you uh, wherever, wheresoever uh, you have gone, end quote. Recalling the last eight and a half years, the honor of a lifetime, George directly addressed Stanley in the video on how the now pastor emeritus will have a continued presence at the church. It will be your legacy, sir, that is uh, my standard, the standard that will inspire me to always do my best with God's help for as long as God gives me to serve here. Stanley, who will turn 88 later this month, led First Baptist through a time of rapid growth not long after becoming pastor that eventually strained its space. In 97, the church sold its properties in downtown Atlanta, relocated to its current location just north of Interstate 285 on North Peachtree Road. Uh, at First Baptist currently counts more than 12,000 members and an estimated global viewing audience in the millions. Stanley issued a final challenge to the congregation in his address saying, I will do what I've encouraged all of you to do. I'm going to obey God, leave all the consequences to him. God bless you all. Charles Stanley retiring at age 88. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.